Well, this evening we are undertaking our fifth and last study in the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And God willing, we will commence studying his letter to Titus the next time that I'm speaking here on a Tuesday evening. And as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often jointly referred to as the pastoral epistles. Perhaps not only because they are addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors, those who lead God's work. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and we know that they both had pastoral responsibility, Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in God's sight. Some men in leadership positions had departed from the truth. So it was exceedingly important for men like Timothy and Titus to make a strong stand for the truth. In our study last month, we considered the whole of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we saw from the scriptures how we might identify those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. We also saw how we can identify those men who are true leaders of God's people. And we saw, did we not, the importance of profiting from the scriptures, which are able to make people wise unto salvation and then to teach people how they may live their lives in a way that is pleasing to God. Well, this evening we shall see how Paul charged Timothy to carry out or discharge his pastoral duties irrespective of men's reaction to his ministry. He was primarily to seek to please God, not men. And we shall also see how Paul had come to terms with the martyrdom that now awaited him. Well, our chapter begins with these words. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So here we have a, a section of scripture which is often expounded or referred to at services of ordination or induction of pastors, since it is a solemn charge that such men are to faithfully expound the word of God and to make suitable application to those in their congregations. Paul charged Timothy, note, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead 
at his appearing and his kingdom, reminding Timothy that he would be accountable for his ministry before God the Father and his Son on that day when all believers will have to give an account for what they have done in this life. There is a judgment day coming, a day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth, when the sheep and the goats will be separated, and when all Christ's sheep will then be with him forever. But when those who have rejected him will be consigned to hell. But here, Paul is speaking of the fact that at Christ's second advent, there will be a body of believers still alive on the earth, referred to here as the quick, as well as those who have already died. And all believers will have to account for what they did with what they received. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking about believers, says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15 we're told this, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. These verses, as I may have mentioned before, are taken by many people to refer to how they live their Christian lives. But I believe they are primarily to do with the effectiveness of those who minister God's word to God's people. Those who lead God's people are privileged to do so, but they are also the more accountable and this is what Paul wanted to impress upon Timothy when he reminded him of the judgment of believers. Would Timothy be ashamed in that day? Or would he be commended for faithfulness? Paul charged him thus, Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And as I said at the outside, this would require Timothy to be more concerned with pleasing God than with pleasing men. And this is because those who are faithful in expounding God's word in a consecutive, expository manner will have no option but to apply what the scripture teaches to the lives of those who are being taught. As I said in our last study, those who go through the scriptures in a systematic fashion, being careful not to gloss over things that might be unpopular, will constantly find that the scriptures will reprove us, they will correct us, and they will instruct us in righteousness. Timothy, Paul said, was to be instant in season and out of season, meaning that he was to be ever ready to exercise his pastoral ministry faithfully irrespective of any external circumstances, not deviating 
for any reason whatsoever from what God required of him. He was to exercise his ministry patiently. He was to do so with long-suffering. It's often been the case that God will test a minister's patience before bestowing a blessing on his ministry. And Timothy was to make sure that his doctrine was sound, that what he taught was in accordance with the scriptures and not just doctrines of men. Well, we mustn't pass over verse 2 of 2 Timothy 4 without noting that, as well as reproving and rebuking God's people as necessary, Timothy was also to exhort them. Now, to exhort people is to encourage them, to comfort them. And this is, you know, a very important part of what we might call a balanced ministry. In going through the scriptures in a consecutive manner, a minister will thus come across verses which lend themselves to exhortation. And he shall seek to encourage God's people thereby. You know, ministers are not to cherry-pick from the scriptures, choosing to preach only on passages which are comforting to believers, but ministers are also not to neglect opportunities to to exalt the brethren when the scripture allows for that to be done. Now, although Timothy, we see, was charged to be doctrinally sound, he was also warned that sound doctrine would be opposed. Paul told him this, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And, you know, we have seen this to be true in succeeding generations. When we consider what some people believe today, we can see how true it is that people will believe in fables. Can we not all think of churches which have all but abandoned doctrine and instead teach people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear? If people want a golden calf to worship, then it won't be long before one is provided for them. And it's often because of their own lusts, their own desires that people go astray. Some people are always looking for something just a bit different, becoming dissatisfied with sound doctrine and preferring that which titillates and entertains them. I don't know how many of you remember this, but there was a time in the church when we had this supposed holy laughter. We had amalgam fillings in people's teeth supposedly being turned to gold we have even had people encouraged to make animal noises during services and some ministers positively encourage those things rather than denouncing them from the scriptures perhaps less obviously anti-scriptural is that teaching that says that god wants everyone to be healthy and to be wealthy. And you can see that that teaching would appeal to those who are mainly interested in themselves. Well, Timothy had a set of problems peculiar to his own day and age, just as we have. And we've already seen how there were those at Ephesus teaching that there was no resurrection to which to look forward. 
There were Gnostics who taught that human beings are divine souls trapped in a material world, which was created, they say, by an imperfect God. And Timothy had to fight against the errors of his own day, just as we have to combat the errors of our own day. And Paul told Timothy to be ever vigilant, saying this, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. You see, Paul was coming to the end of his work on earth, but he knew that Timothy still had some way to go. Timothy was to be on the lookout for anything that was contrary to sound doctrine and to oppose it. He was to do this no matter what the cost and no matter what afflictions he might have to bear. And he was told, was he not, to do the work of an evangelist. Now, what does that involve? doing the work of an evangelist. Well, surely it means preaching the gospel of God's grace, spreading that wonderful news that there is a way for sinners to get right with the holy God whom they have offended with their sin. And surely it means not limiting the preaching of the gospel to places where believers already congregate, but trying to reach the lost wherever they may be. We believe that it is right to preach to the converted. But we also strongly believe that we have a responsibility to seek to reach the unconverted. Now we know from Ephesians 4 and verse 11 that to be an evangelist could be to hold a particular office. That verse reads as follows. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. But here, in 2 Timothy, we see that Paul was instructed Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, meaning that he was to do this as well as being a pastor and a teacher. Can we not say that all of us, irrespective of any office we may or may not hold, can do the work? of an evangelist inasmuch as we all ought to take such opportunities that are given to us to witness to the saving power of God in Christ we should all be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us and we see that Timothy was also instructed to make full proof of his ministry and this meant that he was called to fulfill his ministry to do all that to which he had been called. Timothy had a job to do, and that job consisted of different tasks. Timothy wasn't to do one thing to the exclusion of others, but to do everything required of him to the best of his ability and to neglect nothing. And any church who has a pastor who is a sound preacher, who evangelizes, who cares for the spiritual lives of his flock and gives himself for his people will be a blessed fellowship indeed. As I said earlier, Paul was now constrained in respect of what he could do for God's people and it seems that he was aware that it wouldn't be long before he would be martyred. He wrote this, For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. It seems that Paul was under sentence and death, and it will be just a matter of time before he would be actually executed. But he showed no fear of death, being comforted by the fact that with God's help, he hadn't let God down. And by the fact that when he died, he would be going to a place where he would enjoy everlasting fellowship with his saviour and his fellow believers. It must be a sad thing to reach the end of one's life with many regrets, to be ashamed that so much had been left unaccomplished, but Paul had the assurance that he had fought to the end and that he had done all that had been required of him. He had not fallen away as many had, but had persevered to the end by the grace of God. He now saw beyond his prison cell to a new life in heaven where he would be amply rewarded for his faithfulness with a crown of righteousness. And he saw not only himself there, but all those who truly trusted in Christ, those who, like him, were looking forward to Christ coming again. All those who are true believers have laid up for them crowns of righteousness in heaven to be given to them by their Saviour as their reward. Well, we can see that Paul looked forward to that day, and we should look forward it to as well. But we will only receive our crowns if we persevere to the end, as Paul did. Now, Paul had a very special relationship with Timothy. We know that he accounted Timothy as his son in the faith. And there are two passages of scripture that show us that he was confident that Timothy could deputise for him when the need arose. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 16 and 17, you'll find there these words. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. And then if you turn to Philippians 2, and verses 19 and 20, you'll see there that Paul wrote these words. That's Philippians 2, 19 and 20. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. And although, although Paul did have some company in Rome, we know that he longed to see Timothy before he died, he wrote this, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry, and Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. So presumably Paul didn't expect to be alive for much longer, hence the urgency in his request for Timothy to visit him. A man called Demas had deserted Paul. 
And we know, do we not, from elsewhere in the scriptures that Demas had once been a faithful companion of Paul. At the end of his epistle to the Colossians, Paul wrote these words. We find them in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet you. So at that point, Demas was still with the apostle. But if you turn to the epistle to Philemon, you'll find there these words. That's verses 23 and 24 of that epistle. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow labourer. So at that point, Demas was still around. But we see from our passage tonight that subsequently he deserted Paul. And the reason is given, having loved this present word. Now I suppose these words describe many people who were once found in the company of believers, but who left town, we might say, when the going got tough. It seems that Demas had a choice to make. Either he could take his stand for Christ with Paul and possibly suffer martyrdom, or he could desert Paul and save his life for a time. And we know that this was the choice that he made. He thought more of being able to survive in the world for a time rather than making a stand for Christ. He departed to Thessalonica, perhaps because he felt he would be safe there. We, we don't really know. Now, Demas isn't unique inasmuch as there have been many people since who've been unwilling to pay the price of being a disciple of Christ. And you know, the Lord Jesus said that that was the way that it would be. In the parable of the sower, Christ spoke of the seed which fell in stony places. And later he gave this explanation to his disciples. The Lord said this, But he that received the seed in stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. So Demas chose the world instead of Christ. And you know, it makes me wonder how any of us would react if persecution was to come upon us. Who amongst us could say that there is no possibility of us ever deserting Christ. In the first chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul wrote these words, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I trust that each of us here this evening will be able to say the same thing. Now, Crescens and Titus never deserted Paul but rather went with his blessing to Galatia and Dalmatia respectively. They went to do the Lord's work 
in those places. And although we know nothing else about questions, we do know much more about Titus. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned twice in Galatians, as well as being the recipient of the epistle from Paul, that God will in, we shall commence studying next month. The only person now left with Paul was Luke. Paul said, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus. Well, Luke had been with Paul throughout many of his missionary journeys, and he may well have been the one who wrote things down that Paul dictated. And Paul referred to him as the beloved physician, although we're much more aware of the evangelistic work that he undertook than any medical work that he undertook. As you may know, Luke wrote the longest of the four Gospels and also the book of Acts, and he would have been a great comfort to Paul at Rome, would he not? Now, having seen the bad end of Demas, the bad end, we can be encouraged by what Paul said about Mark, also known as John Mark. Which of us would have thought that Paul would ever say of him, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Consider what we know about Mark from the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verses 36 to 39. Those verses read thus. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. Mark had been with Paul on that first missionary journey, but he he decided to return to Jerusalem for reasons unknown to us. And we know that because of that, Paul had felt that Mark wasn't fit to accompany them on any subsequent journey. And we know that Paul and Barnabas fell out badly, so badly that they split up, Barnabas taking Mark with him. Now, this could have been the making or the breaking of John Mark. And it seems to have been the making of him. It's felt that Mark prospered under Barnabas's tutelage, and we know that he also had some association with the Apostle Peter. As time passed, Mark developed into someone whom Paul could trust. So much so that Paul was now able to say, he is profitable to me for the ministry. Well, that was a bit of a turnaround. Paul didn't at one time consider him, consider him profitable, but now he was saying he is profitable to me for the ministry. And it teaches us that we shouldn't write people off just because of one lapse. We should rejoice to see any backslider fully committed to the work of the Lord once again. With regard to Tychicus, we first hear of him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where we're told he was one of the men who accompanied Paul into Asia. We also know from Ephesians 6 and verse 21 
that he was, and I quote, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. And that's expanded on a bit in Colossians 4 verse 7 where he's described there as a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. It seems that Paul commissioned Tychicus to deliver some of his epistles. And when we read here that Paul has sent him to Ephesus, we must remember that this is where Timothy was. So very likely he actually delivered this second epistle. Some feel that Paul intended that Tychicus would stay to oversee the work at Ephesus if Timothy left Ephesus to come to Rome to see Paul, as Paul hoped he would. And we shall come across Tychicus again when we study the epistle to Titus. Now with regard to Timothy going to Rome to see Paul as requested, we don't know if he ever managed to do that, to go there. But we do know that Paul hoped that he would. For we see that Paul said this, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Whilst in prison, as cold weather approached, Paul would welcome his heavy cloak, and so he asked Timothy to collect it from Carpus at Troas in Turkey on his way to Rome. And he also asked him to pick up some books and parchments that he left there, especially the parchments. Now, the books may have been Old Testament scriptures recorded on scrolls, and the parchments may have been blank sheets which Paul needed for final letters that he intended to write or hoped to write. Now, some of you will have heard of a man called William Tyndale. William Tyndale. He, when he was imprisoned at Vilvald Castle, he requested a, a warmer cap and a cloak and a woolen shirt, but most of all, his Hebrew Bible, his grammar and his vocabulary. And both these men wanted to be useful right up to the time of their martyrdom. We see that Alexander the coppersmith was someone who opposed the gospel of God's grace. Paul said this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. It's felt that this man was at Rome, and that in fact he may even have been a, a man who was party to Paul's rearrest. But Paul was content to leave this man's judgment in the law's hands. And this should be our attitude towards any who oppose our stand for Christ. Alexander had greatly opposed Paul's teaching and would be a danger to Timothy also if he came to Rome, seeing that Timothy and Paul were in one mind in their preaching and teaching of the gospel of God's grace. Now, in the Roman legal system, an accused person would have two hearings, not just one, he'd have two hearings. The first hearing was one where the charge had to be clearly established, and the second where the accused innocence or guilt was determined. Thus, the first answer is the one that Paul refers to, sorry, the first hearing is the one that Paul refers to as his first answer. He wrote, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, 
that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Now it's possible, it may be, that some of Paul's closest associates at Rome, men such as Luke and Onesiphorus, were not able to be present at Paul's first hearing. But none of those who could have been there to support him did so. And that is to their shame. Just as some Old Testament saints typified Christ, so some New Testament saints identified themselves with him in being left to face their trial alone. Paul counted the non-appearance of his friends as faint-heartedness rather than false-heartedness as did our saviour. But, praise God, Paul didn't consider himself to be alone, for he knew that his saviour was with him, as he had promised. The Lord Jesus said this, He shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak, for it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And it appears that Paul took the opportunity afforded at his trial to preach the gospel to the many Gentiles gathered there. Paul has a place amongst that select band of God's people who were privileged to testify in court of the grace shown to them by a merciful God. Now, we can't be sure if Paul was speaking literally or figuratively when he said that he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. We do know that some believers in Roman times were thrown to the lions, but tradition has it that Paul was eventually headed. Perhaps uh, Paul was saying here that he was spared from being taken to the arena. Well, irrespective of what Paul had in mind, we can be sure of this that God is able to deliver his people out of any danger if he so wishes. We read, do we not, in the book of Daniel, of how Daniel was delivered from the mouths of lions. And all believers can be confident that nothing can ever befall them outside of God's will. Paul knew that he was unlikely to live for much longer, but he knew that during the time remaining to him, he was as safe as the supremacy of the power of God. He was able to say, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, none of us can know the hour of our death with any certainty or indeed the manner of our death, but we can be sure that God will preserve us right up to that appointed time and then take us to be with him in his heavenly kingdom. As can be seen, the main body of the epistle finishes with Paul's doxology at the end of verse 18, and then in verses 19 to 21, we see that there are various salutations and other items that you might expect to find in what is, as it were, a postscript. Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens and Linus, 
and Claudia and all the brethren. Well, Paul had met Prisca, or known by her other name Priscilla, and Aquila, her husband, at Corinth on his second missionary journey. You can read more about them in Acts chapter 18, from verse 19 of which we see that Paul left them both at Ephesus, where Timothy himself was now ministering, though we know that they had a wider ministry subsequently. We know this, do we not, from Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, where Paul wrote these words. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. What a great testimony that was to their usefulness in the service of their Saviour. Another person who had helped Paul was a man we came across in 2 Timothy 1, verses 16 to 18. Those verses read thus. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he might find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. And now, here we see at the end of this letter, the apostle sending greetings to Onesiphorus' household at Ephesus. A man named Erastus abode or stayed at Corinth, and he may be the man mentioned in Romans 16 and verse 23, being the city chamberlain or treasurer, we, we don't know. He's likely to have been the same man mentioned in Acts 19 and verse 22 where we have these words that Paul sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Now, the last part of verse 20 of 2 Timothy 4 is very significant. Paul wrote this, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Trophimus have I left at Miletum seat. And this gives the lie to that teaching that maintains that God wants every believer to be well at all times. Trophimus is mentioned in Acts 20 and verse 4 as one of Paul's companions, and it's believed he was the same person mentioned in Acts 21 and verse 29, whom the Jews claimed had been unlawfully bought into the temple by Paul. It was the will of God at that time that Trophimus should remain unwell. And we need to understand that there may be times when the Lord wants us to remain unwell for reasons known only to himself, but for our ultimate benefit. Paul was greatly desirous of Timothy visiting him before winter set in, he wrote, do thy diligence to come before winter. As I mentioned a bit earlier, whilst in prison, as cold weather approached, Paul would welcome the heavy cloak that he left with Carpus at Charas in Turkey, together with the books and parchments he'd also left there, but especially the parchments. Now, the last people mentioned by Paul are all thought to be believers from Rome because they had Roman names. Paul said, Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Now we don't know anything about these people unless Linus was that Linus who was reputed to have become the second bishop of Rome. 
Well, Paul's final words to Timothy were these. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And those words are believed to be the Apostles' last recorded words. Now, Paul was ever desirous of drawing attention to the, the, the grace of God, having been such a beneficiary of it himself. And he knew that the very best thing that he could ask for Timothy and others was that the Lord would be, would be with them in spirit and that they would continue to know the grace of God in their lives. Well, we've come to the end of our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy, and I trust that they may have been of some spiritual benefit to us. I hope that we have seen how men are to carry out their pastoral duties irrespective of any adverse reaction to their ministry, that they are to seek to please God and not to please men. I also hope that we've seen how we are able to distinguish between false and true teachers. And I hope that should the need arise, we will be able to stand up for Christ before ungodly men as Paul did, even though, as was true in Paul's case, there may be a big price to pay. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.